everyone. Welcome to episode 114 of Manage the Wild. I'm Nick Madsen. Today I had the wonderful opportunity to sit down with Jim Christensen, Wildlife Manager for the Utah Division of Wildlife. And we got to talk about the different responsibilities and the different things that go into managing wildlife and how challenging they are. It was an awesome time. We got to go out today and spend some time counting grouse, uh, sage grouse on Lex and to be able to go out and to view wildlife with a biologist is, is an op- awesome opportunity. Right off the bat, I say something dumb. I don't know why it came out of my mouth, but I said we were counting sharp tail. That's not true. We were counting sa- sage grouse. And we ended up seeing a few from Lex that we, or he had not previously seen, or I had been in that same area and hadn't seen him there as well. So it was a good opportunity just to be able to spend the morning with him and to be able to approach wildlife through his perspective. And so hope you guys enjoy. Sit back, relax. Okay, so I'm sitting here with Jim Christensen, Wildlife Manager for the Northern Region of the Utah Division of Wildlife. Thanks for sitting with me, Jim. Yeah. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm actually really glad. Uh, Today was a fun morning. Got to go out and count some sharp tail. Got to dig a little snow. Yeah. So thanks for the opportunity. My wife will be grateful for the exercise. So I'm glad you were able to sit down with me today. Um, Some of the things that I think people often don't understand is how the wildlife works and those who work in wildlife. And one of the positions that I think people don't really understand is what a wildlife manager does. Can you go ahead and talk about the duties that you perform as well as your overall objective? Yeah. So as the wildlife manager, uh, it's kind of a, a big, uh, large scale, uh, job to where, I, I oversee the, the the various aspects of dealing and managing wildlife, I guess, dealing with and, and managing wildlife. So we manage all the way from from the, the big charismatic species that we hunt, the, the deer, the elk, the moose, uh, the bears, all the way down to the ones that we don't hunt, the, the conservation species, the ones that, that need a little more help from us and uh, not as popular and so my my job oversees all of those and and ensuring that that the biologists are collecting their data and and getting the the information that they need to help these populations stay sustainable and um, you know and then there's a lot of administrative duties that go along with it too that that nobody really likes I often say that's what they actually pay me to come to work for is to do all the stuff in the office. And so, uh, you know, a morning like this, coming out to count grouse, uh, I mean, I'd volunteer to do it for free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why I'm here. <laughs> uh, so as a wildlife manager, you oversee biologists, and your biologists vary in degrees, uh, basically their range and their area varies. How is that challenging as a manager to make sure you're helping your biologists in each area because they're so different? How is that? How is it challenging for you to go out and work with each one and making sure? Yeah, so just the the sheer scope of work that they need to do is is a challenge of number one distance to to get there to to each place you know it's about a two-hour drive to to get to the edge of our districts wherever we're at and then just just the kind of work that that needs to be done and just the sheer quantity of of work that needs to be done too is a challenge because um, every one of my crew whether it be you know on on the nuisance depredation side or on the grouse counting side or the deer classification side Boy, we need to be so many places all at the same time that for, for me as a manager, I, I know that they physically cannot do it on their own. Just, there's just just too much for them. And so as the manager, I see the work that needs to be done. Um, I feel like I can can help out with that, too. But then I, I put myself into that that position, too, where boy, there's just not enough of me to go around. I can only only ride one horse at, at a time, you know, type saying and so can only be in one place, help one person. And so try and try and divvy it up and, and, and spread it out over the, the week and the month. And, you know, obviously there's times where I still got to take care of my own responsibilities back at the office, but as much as I can, um, try and get out and, and just help 
logistically with with these guys and and gals uh, we've got some great women on our team as well that uh, i mean every day they're just busting their butt we can always tell if nobody's pulling their weight because stuff's not getting done and um the the, the crew that i have right now is awesome uh yeah they're busy but they they keep up with the work so uh during the rack meeting they were presenting some of the numbers for your region and what was crazy to me is the amount of nuisance calls. There was over 2,300 in from what, November through February? Yeah, through through March. And how many people are, are on your staff covering those 2,300 calls? So we all all tend to step up and help with that. My, my total staff size with me is 11. Uh, for the, the nuisance and depredation side alone, we have uh, a supervisor, a, a biologist that, that oversees that program. He has two landowner specialists and two wildlife technicians. The, the two wildlife technicians deal a lot with, with those nuisance calls and the dead deer and, and other dead wildlife that, that, that get called in. Uh, the landowner specialists, they, they work with the private landowners as we get elk in haystacks you know, through the winter time, they they need to go and respond and and figure out how to mitigate that damage and whether it needs to be fenced off or uh, payments and and along with that, they've also got to get counts of how many animals are actually coming in so we know how much to 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 pay these guys that are that are suffering the damage and so that that crew of five boy they really take the brunt of it because the biologists still have all of their their things that they need to be doing of. You know, making sure they have the data to come up with the recommendations. The the hunt recommendations take a lot more time than than you would think of just uh, coordinating um, and and following the management plans and coordinating with uh, the the other coordinators in our Salt Lake office and and making sure we're all on the same page and aligned with with the plans and uh, working with our constituent groups. Um, there's a lot of social management that goes into these recommendations that, um, as biologists, we tend to overlook the social side. Uh, and that's why we have the, the RAC and the wildlife board process, too. So so as, as biologists overlook some of the social aspects of it, we can we can hear about them in those meetings. But, but we try and work those social management implications out before the RAC and the, and the wildlife board meetings as well. And so that that's just a lot of talking, a lot of sharing our data, a lot of education, um, educating the sportsmen and women of, of what we're seeing, why we're making the recommendations we're making. A year like this, too, boy, it's just been such a challenge with um, with with the winter conditions of, of needing to adjust and readjust and, and readjust again and, and probably need to do it again, as was mentioned in the Northern Region RAC meeting. And so, boy, just just a lot of stuff going on there, and um, and so, you know, back back to your question of, of the nuisance and, and depredation side of things. There, we it, if we don't all help out at some time, our we we just can't keep up. Yeah. And and part of that social management with the dead stuff is people don't like dead stuff in their backyards, and especially the longer it waits. The, the warmer it gets, the the smellier they get. I start, I call it pulling socks because <laughs> yeah. when you grab them by the leg, it all falls off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pull them out one leg at a time. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the challenges that you face this winter is the, the amount of snow and the hardship it's placed upon mule deer. In the rack meeting and, is, and in the work group, they talked about one area that you're managing is now 27% survival rate of adults. That's not fawn or yearling, that's adults. What challenge does that place on you going forward with survival rates anywhere from the 20s to the 70%? Yeah, so so moving forward, we'll, we'll start. So is the Morgan Southridge unit uh, sitting currently at 25% adult doe survival. Uh, so, so the main challenge with that is okay, how, how is this population going to respond to moving forward out of the winter? Uh, the first thing we look at is, you know, obviously populations are controlled through antlerless harvest. Uh, for us, we really don't hunt antlerless deer. This is where I, th- I think you were going with the social aspect. Like, you, I think 
hunters tend to focus more on on bucks, and biologists tend to focus more on does. Yep. And trying to get them. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a good point of, of when we talk to people, they want to see the the deer herds. Well, typically when they're hunting, they're only hunting bucks, and so it it a, a lot of that conversation just just moves around bucks and buck harvest. You know, let let's be honest, bucks are only important for about three weeks out of the year and then they go and do their own thing and so yeah as as we're looking at getting a a population to rebound we've got to look at that adult doe portion of the population what do we have left Um, typically um, pregnancy rates are always up in the the mid to upper 90 percent pregnancy rates Uh, the the rate of twinning is, is really high um, and so, so we look at that to, to know, all right, moving forward, how quick are we going to, to replenish the population that we just lost? Now, bucks will survive the winters better than the does just because they're more dominant. You get these, these severe winters like this, it congregates the deer on the winter ranges, on those critical, most critical winter ranges. It, when the resources are limited, the bucks are going to outcompete everything else. The bucks will outcompete the does, and then the does will outcompete the fawns. That's why the fawns will go first. Uh, oh, that's interesting. And, and then the does. And so with the bucks, yeah, we, we will lose some bucks. Uh, we know that. But we won't lose as many. And and so when when we look at, at permits, yeah, we, we always have to look at those antlerless permits first. Um, the ones that we do have, they're they're just for depredation mitigation. Uh, you know the chronic places where we have chronic agricultural depredation or or issues in towns. You know we'll 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 hunt does there, but for the bucks, just you know we we know we'll have to to say you know a certain percentage of the population are bucks, and if we lose a certain percentage of those two, there just will be fewer bucks on the landscape. Therefore, for hunter satisfaction. We we should probably reduce the number. Of Again, permits. that's a social, right? More than anything, right? Because biologically, yeah. we we can only. I mean, we can get down to eight bucks per hundred does and still cover all the does during the breeding season. We we really don't need many bucks. It's it's like a farmer or a rancher. They don't run very high bull to cow ratios. Yeah, um, just because. Those, those bulls dirt outside the breeding season, all they're doing is is costing money at that point, just just eating up the feed and tearing down fences. So that sparked a thought. Um, buck to doe ratios. You're between eighteen and twenty on normal units, and on your premium units, what up to twenty to twenty five? Yeah, yeah. So the the limited entry units are the twenty five to thirty five range, and then there's some premium limited entry units that. Boy, they'll get upwards into the 40 to 50 bucks per hundred does. So the thought it sparked is you actually may be putting more pressure on your does the higher your buck to doe ratio is if you have a hard winter like this since they're out competing. Right. And and there's research out there that shows the more bucks you have, it limits your your total production. And so you'll have fewer fawns and fewer does just because the, the bucks do take up extra resources. They're... They're more dominant, and so you you kind of trade fawns for bucks. Oh, I never thought of that. That's interesting. And then it also shows that if you have, I think there's research, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or right, but uh, the weaker the doe is when she gives birth to the fawn, it puts the fawn at a disadvantage for up to two for, to three years. For life, yeah, pretty much. So the the condition, the overall body condition of the doe, while she's pregnant has a lot to do with antler size of that buck that will come from her. Um, just because it, if it antlers are the, the last thing to grow, um, they, they care about their survival and, and their body condition more than the antlers. Um, and so as, as that fawn is in utero and growing up, if that doe is in poor condition, then that, that buck is going to start in poor condition as, as a fawn. And so in order to compensate for that, it's going to have to just devote more resources to growing and developing that fat. Um, and then, yeah, that have the research that, that come out to show that it, 
it's a, a lag effect too of it impacts it through several years after that this is why it's so fascinating because there's things that when i have these discussions with you guys that i don't even i never thought about buck to doe competition you always think about mule deer to elk or or something else but there's competition going on with in the group as well uh that leads me to the next thing kent hersey talked about it as well as dax but the winter feed sites at this time of year, it's become real popular. Everybody wants to do it. I've talked in the past in the previous podcasts about what I feel about feeding and how it creates a, a few problems. Um, it changes their their behavior. It spreads disease. Um, Ken Hersey talked about there was 49 sites that you guys fed. 5,800 deer uh, were estimated to be fed. You fed 475 tons. And the overall study that Kent has, the preliminary results show that it was effective. But there's a challenge in that it may be effective, but it's not the best thing for the mule deer. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, and, and I guess the effectiveness is at a local scale. On a population side, there, I mean, we're, we're feeding about 10% of the deer on, on the units. Um, that's not very many in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, didn't Kent say there was three hundred or close to four hundred thousand deer statewide in your guys's units that you were feeding in? You're feeding ten percent or less, right? And what was the dollar figure? I don't. It was six hundred thousand, but that doesn't cover any of the volunteer time, trucks or gas. Right. Yeah, that's just the feed cost. And I mean, when we start to complain about the, the cost of hay, just try buying deer food. It's over double what what the a ton of hay costs now. A ton of feed is is significantly more. And so um, we we run into that that challenge of being able to effectively feed enough to to make a difference on a population scale. But on a localized scale where we can feed, it's showing that that we can make a difference there. Just just to say that that all the collared fawns that we had um, prior to the winter, you know, December we go in and, and collar fawns. All those that were not going into feed sites at this point have, have died. But we've gone in. We 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 darted and collared some some fawns on the feed sites. And we're still about 85% survival on on those feed sites for those fawns coming in. And so we, we've made a pretty significant difference on fawn survival at, at the feed sites. Uh, adults doe survival as well. We, we can see a, a difference at, at those sites. Um, but, the yeah, as, right, the challenge is expanding that. I mean, just logistically, um, we were maxed out this year with with what the feed we could get and the feed that we could deliver i mean if it weren't for all the volunteers that are helping and donating their time boy there's just no way it'd be 10 times more expensive right it'd be 10 times more expensive and so then it just looks at at that cost to benefit ratio of boy it costs so much to feed this these few a deer what else can we do to benefit the deer at a larger scale and, and you know that's where the the large scale habitat improvements come in play. Of we can carry a lot more deer on the natural feed than we can with with giving them the 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 feed on feed rows. When you're looking at this type of winter with the die off that you're having on on some of your populations, is this uh, helping you understand carrying capacity, or is this just a, a freak winter? And your baselines are based off of more milder winters. Yeah, so typically our, our biological carrying capacities, we, we try and set them to, you know, what we can carry on the worst conditions. This year would probably be. Well, we've never had this bad of conditions, you know, that at least in the last 40 years. Um, I, I, I know as I've talked to, to, to uh, retired biologists that they've seen plenty of bad winters that, that rival this. Uh, you know, the duration and, you know, they, they just get snow earlier in the year. It seems deeper and it lasts just as long. 
I, I talked to a retired biologist the other day that said they had fed all the way. The last time they fed was April 23rd, you know, was the last time they fed one of the years. And so, so it's happened before to where it just, you know, just goes so long that, um, you know, just keeping up with it is is a challenge for sure. Do you guys have to go and reevaluate your your models based upon this new data? Is this going to make you rethink or are your biological carry capacity do you think you're hovering pretty close to where you need it? So for for this year, you know, we know this isn't going to be an every year yeah type thing. So I, we could we can set our overall population objectives, you know, a, a little higher because let's face it, really only the that Morgan South Rich yeah, unit just that one unit really took the the hit. all the rest were seventies and above, right? Right. Yes. Which means, yeah, we, I mean, we always have natural mortality. We yep. we expect a certain amount, and and to say that we we had the worst winter on record, and like the cash unit is only about. 10% lower than a normal winter. Than a normal. That means that we're well within our biological carrying capacity there. Morgan South Rich, yeah, we might need to take a look there. Um, what's limiting that that population of being able to to keep higher numbers? You know, there, there's likely some some habitat concerns that, that we need to address there before we can, um, in, for sure, increase our, our objectives on that unit. Uh, we we did go in a couple of years ago and make some adjustments, um, and actually reduced that that population objective. Um, but you know we still hadn't hit that mark, and so yeah, that's something that that we'll definitely need to take a look at now and say, okay, is this even a feasible mark for us to go for, or do we need to to lower that down a little further? Because I mean, socially, yeah, people socially would take way more deer, but but biologically, um, on, on these worst winters, uh, we just can't carry them. I think that's the one thing that I've enjoyed about working with wildlife, especially here in Utah, is how adaptive the management is. You can take a, a bad year and say, okay, we need to tweak it a little, and how everybody's pretty good at looking at those numbers, especially as you go through the RAC meeting and the work, uh, the wildlife board meeting how everybody was concerned about the direction the mule deer were trending. I think everybody seemed to have a concern. You cover a lot of different animals in this unit. It's just amazing the different species that you cover. One of the the species that I was curious about are, are mountain goats. We had some issues on Willard a couple of years ago. Can you talk about how you're going to have to adapt to those those big changes in population? Yeah, so so the Willard herd, when I first started my career, we were well. One of the first things I actually got to do, I was I was just a seasonal technician, and I went up with a coworker. We that did was a couple it, of years ago. Yeah, it's, it's been a <laughs> been a minute. Uh, we went up and did a Mark Resite study on on those goats as part of his undergraduate research that oh, that he cool. was doing. And so we went up and paintballed a, a, a bunch of mountain goats. And I tell you what, you got to be dang close to get a paintball to break on a mountain goat, even in the summertime when they lose their hair or, you know, lose their winter coats. And so, and they live in steep, nasty places. And it's and, miserable. And if you got if you got to get close to them, I mean, it, it's, it's difficult. But anyway, back then he figured we were pushing 300 mountain goats on, on the Willard Peak herd. And so at that point, you know, they were growing great. Uh, we, the manager and, and the biologists at the time were, were, were harvesting accordingly with, with the production they were getting. And they were actually taking some goats off of, of, of the unit to, to help augment other populations across the state. Um, one of the challenges that we, we do have with mountain goats is they're really hard to distinguish between the billies and the nannies. Sometimes the nannies are bigger than the billies. In fact, there's a while and might still be might still be true that the state record goat was a nanny. What's a nanny? Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, they, they get big and 
you got to spend a lot of time to watch them, and and a lot of times it's just okay. How do they pee uh, to to distinguish them? And so for a lot of hunters, you know, they don't spend a lot of time looking at mountain goats because number one, it's a once a lifetime species. Yeah, they they know of areas where there's goats, but they're not going to go up and look at them all the time until they have a permit in their pocket. And so it it and the goats are still wild, and they're not going to always stand there and let you get a good look at them. They're going to move, and so. Um, with, with, with that challenge of distinguishing, we have a lot of either sex tags and, and especially back then when the goat numbers were high, uh, they, they were okay with the either sex tags because the population could sustain that harvest. Um, well with, with that harvest, a, a lot of those goats were nannies that got harvested. When we did our transplants, all of those were all of the adults were nannies and you know we we took kids with them as well and so then that that helped bring the population down well then we had a bad winter in 2017 where we fed deer that year as well um and then we followed that up with some severe drought and boy the just the combination of factors there really brought that mountain goat herd herd right down so where we've had to take serious looks at, at the way we hunt those goats, um, be way more conservative than we had to be in the past. Uh, we've had to, to decrease permits uh, by an incredible amount. We're down to one permit. On the Willard? On the Willard now that, that we're recommending just because the population has got down to, to about 30 animals at this point. And so... Um, we, we just need to give them a chance to, to rebound as much as possible, still allow some, some harvest because, um, you know, it's just like with, with any of the deer, the elk that have been dying through the winter. I'd much rather let a sportsman harvest that animal in the fall than let it starve to death in the winter. And so we, we know we'll have some natural mortality. And so, you know, it's the, the compensatory versus additive mortality that we're looking at there of, okay, we'll just hunt those that'll be compensatory mortality not the additive we don't want to add extra but have you since you've had that large die-off in 17 and 18 how's the population is it become the state is it stable or is it still decreasing it it's pretty well stabilized fortunately and and for the mountain goats that we we did go up and put some gps collars on some of them just so we could get an idea of what was going on with that population and Boy, there there hasn't been like any period since we collared them where there's been multiple goats die through a, a short period of time. It's just been one every, basically one every year is, is all we'll get. And it's like, well, that could just be natural mortality. I mean, things just die. I mean, as good as they are on the cliffs, some of them we figured that it just fell off a cliff. Avalanches and, or who knows whatever. Right, yeah, who who knows, whatever. And so... That's so interesting. Um, I know in some states like uh, Alaska and Montana, when they are hunting these once-in-a-lifetime, I guess, type species, they go and do orientation classes. Is Utah talking about doing something, or do they do? Do they offer that for mountain goats? No, I mean we we have some some pictures and and some identifying features that 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 we put out there. Uh, we're we always in, encourage and invite people to come along and, and take a look at them. There's some viewing events uh, that the, the division hosts that, that people can go and look and, and have a biologist right there. To they're say, still challenging. Right. They're, they're just so challenging. It reminds me of the first time I had to sex a cougar. Yeah. It's hard to tell. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it takes practice. You wouldn't think so, but it does take practice. Uh, can you talk about the pronghorn? I know we've got some issues with pronghorn here. Wyoming, they talked about, it's got some issues going on. Can you talk about the state of the pronghorn and and how your objectives may be changing with the new challenges they're facing? Yeah, yep. So so for pronghorn, we'll start with, so box elder, pronghorn are doing great. We're, we're right at objective or slightly above. Um, our rich county pronghorn, though, um, they've, they're, they're right on the edge of Wyoming. Uh, they've had a pneumonia outbreak in in the pronghorn right right across the border, not too far from us. 
and so we're we're really keeping an eye on on that this winter has been really hard on the pronghorn over in in rich county as well uh starting to see some some more mortality stack up on that so for that one we've had to go in and and just like the deer we had to look at at the doe harvest first and say okay what's going to happen with this population and so we we canceled every one of the doe permits that we had over there um you know if if we get into the summertime we have some some depredation issues or anything like that you know we can selectively uh, and strategically issue some like some mitigation permits or vouchers there to to help our ag producers out but um, other than that you know overall population wise yeah cut all those those female permits out um, and then looking at the bucks you know we manage bucks on an age objective and so that that's kind of a tricky one for us of we we know that probably some of those those higher age class bucks the more dominant ones are, are going to survive a little better so those that that'll get harvested will will be a little older the ones that meaning that we'd need to increase permits actually um and and we saw that again this year but we we had to take a look at it and say okay we're anticipating some some mortality there so there will just be fewer bucks period on the landscape and so we need to to make some permit reductions there as well and and the way it's going boy rich county's just it's an ice box yeah it's just cold and the snow is deep and and so i think we still have some some more mortality to come from them so that's another one of those where right before our our next wildlife board meeting we'll probably have to make some adjustments there as well to to reduce the more of those permits but but yeah the the main concerning one is is the disease risk over there and that's something i you know going back to mountain goats on willard that you know we may have had a mycoplasma outbreak ov pneumonia yeah or, yeah, or you know there's there's so many different yeah, there's a hundred different strains yeah, yeah there's so many different strains that it could have been one of those in fact that's what's getting the the pronghorn in wyoming right now is is mycoplasma um and Bo- bovi is oh, what the, it is. it's not the ovi but it's the, the bovi and and so yeah that that mycoplasma you know where those goats are are living and dying and before we had the the collars on them it's hard you know, to get it, in there it, and it, find it, them right it's hard to tell you know they they could have had an outbreak of, of mycoplasma and pneumonia and those that are there now have been able to you know they were healthy enough at the time to be able to survive it now they're just just living with it and uh, carriers you know, right and shedding right and so oh that's challenging because it, it could have been especially as it went through as fast as it did it very well could have been right. like those uh bighorn sheep that we had quarantined at hardware for a yeah. while yeah that's challenging right yeah because what was it <laughs> one or two tested positive and by, yeah, the, by, by the we had 28 just, yeah just a couple of weeks it, yeah. it took Six weeks? No, five weeks? Yeah, it didn't take long It didn't take very long. That's crazy. Can you talk about um, uh, your... They talked about being over-objective. In in some units, you're over-objective on certain animals, uh, elk. And it was brought up. um, Can you talk about hunt strategies, how, how you would work with hunt strategies and bringing down a population this is the one thing that i find very difficult is not when you have a population that's under objective because you can cut all tags if you need to mm-hmm. but once you become over objective there seems to be a real challenge on these units that are heavily private right can, can you talk about the just the challenge the overall challenge that you face as a manager right and especially with elk it, it's not as simple as increase the number of permits why shouldn't shouldn't there be a direct correlation yeah, right. you, you would think that but elk are so responsive to disturbance and, and there there's research out of utah on that as well can you provide like an example of and, what you mean responsive so as as you show up and and especially as uh mainly the antlerless elk die you know, if there's a negative response with that, I don't know if there's some kind of hormone that they emit or a smell to it or something, but boy, the elk, 
you know, hunters will testify to this. They go to the deepest, darkest canyons they can so as soon to, as you to, target get, a, to get away from the disturbance. So as soon as you target a cow, they're gone. Yeah. And, and so, you know, as, as we, we think about being over-objective, yeah, the, the first thing is let's increase permits. But it's got to be strategic. Um, if you get, you know, too many people on the landscape, having a big rush in, in to go kill those elk. Yeah, some people will kill elk. But the majority of those elk that are still alive, they're going to find those safe havens, whether it's going to be other parcels of private land where, you know, we, we have them in northern Utah where it's like a corporation that, that owns the ground or it's a, a development where um, people love to, to be up and living in the mountains and seeing the wildlife and they don't hunt. And so the, the elk will run and find those areas and know, okay, I'm safe. I, I'm, I'm not going to get shot here. So elk are, are very responsive and very able to be able to find those safe havens, whether it's on, on private property that's close to hunting or a big nasty deep canyon where nobody in his right mind is going to go shoot a cow elk out of and, and pack it out of there. And so... So that's the challenge that we deal with. Um, some of the, I mean, we, we've got to attack it strategically. Um, we, we, we've got to try and keep the elk on their toes and guessing where we're going to be and when we're going to be there. And so we'll need to look at um, how do we adjust our season dates? Um, because sometimes you can increase your harvest uh, by actually decreasing some of the permits. Uh, because you're you're just increasing your harvest success rates for for each individual hunter, you know rather than having a hundred people and and killing thirty elk uh, through you know with the thirty percent success rate, you can cut it down to fifty people and still kill. Because uh, the over, overall pressure is right, less. The, right. The overall pressure is less. That's interesting. And so so we can look at that. Um, we can look at different boundaries um uh with along with the season dates and boundaries um we we've looked at areas where we've had elk depredation issues that you know we weren't necessarily over objective but we were having some some issues and we would give just a full six month season for anybody to go hunt elk and we just weren't getting any kind of of harvest to help out with those situations and so we ended up making shorter hunts um, on a specific area where we could specifically target an area during a certain time. And, and let's face it too, there's, there's a hunter effort uh, aspect to this as well, especially if somebody has to drive a long ways. I mean, they're only going to drive the two or three hour trip a couple of times, especially for an antlerless elk. Um, before they just say, I'm b- done. before they just say it, they're done and and people are busy too i'm in the same way i get to the point where i have a two-week hunt well i really only have three days in the middle of the week that i can hunt and so once those three days are done you know i'm out of there so so we go to these shorter hunts smaller areas where we can put fresh boots on the ground basically every other weekend if we need to or every month if we need to or you know how however best it, it might see that, that we need to do that now on on areas two we have some some cooperative wildlife management units the, the cwmus um, they're in the same boat they they'd have to kind of adjust when they could bring their hunters in um, to strategically harvest those elk and, um, and and be able to make a difference and not just blow all their you know their their money maker the bulls and the bucks and yeah. and, and they don't want to blow those out of the country and and into those safe havens either because, uh, you know, that that's for a lot of these guys, that's how they make their living. And so, you know, they got to be careful with that as well and, and not put too much pressure on. But at the same time, put enough on there that, that we're getting the harvest that is needed to to help these populations. And it, it gets to the point, too, where we're almost there now, if we're not already, where there's just too many animals and we're too high over objective and we just can't put enough hunters on the ground at the same time 
um, without having a, a good plan in place and being really strategic about it. So we don't just pinball the elk into the different safe havens and, and nobody gets to harvest at all. Is there a possibility? Because we, we had Chad Wilson on last time, and he talked about the hunt dates were 61 days for antlered animals. So if is there a possibility? Because I remember you talked about this here out in Box Elder. You were hunting elk in Box Elder, and then they would run into Nevada or Idaho. So you guys got together a tri-state. Mm-hmm. Has there been talk about lining up all the CWMUs to hunt the same 61 days? So, or is there just mul- so many options? So, right. So they they all can hunt the sixty one days for for the. But it doesn't have uh, to be the I same sixty one, does it? Right, and antlerless they can hunt six months. Yeah. But they're not going to until after they kill their antler. Right. Usually they they wait for the antlered elk, and so yeah, that would be one where you know maybe as as a division we need to do that. We need to help facilitate those discussions. Uh, of getting everybody to say, okay, we need to hunt cows, all of us, during this time frame, you know, even if it's August. Everybody needs to bring some people in in August so that when I shoot these elk and they run to you, you can shoot them and they run to him and he shoots and they run back to me and they they just kind of are staying on everybody's properties just so that they, you know, they're they're still available during the, the bull hunt. Um, there are certain areas I, I've, I've noticed throughout my career where the elk just really want to be during the rut and it's mainly the cows and wherever those cows are going to be during the rut, the bulls are going to come in. And, and so there, there could be a time, you know, with, with those season dates that they say, okay, by, you know, September 1st, we're all done hunting cows and, and we just give them a couple weeks break, let them settle down get through the rut middle october we start again and and maybe it could be a you know we we all have so many different public hunters you know even if it's a we bring two or three in at a time or five at a time you know whatever that number needs to be just so we can get the same effect as as like we did in in box elder county with with uh, nevada and idaho of okay no matter where those elk are going to be we're going to have boots on the ground and, and tags in pockets to to be able to to go after them. Did you find that to be effective, or am I just making that up in my mind? That tri-state. No, it it it's been very effective. It it's it, that's probably the best thing that we've done to be able to a, attack that herd at a population level. Because um, there was a lot of depredation going on in every state, wasn't there? Right. A lot of challenges? Right. So so in the Grouse Creek unit itself, in the Grouse Creek Valley, we have an objective of 175 elk at any time through the year. When I first started, we were up around 700 Holy elk at that time. And so, I mean, it, it takes time. This isn't a one year to the next, you know, we're, we're instantly at objective. Um but at, at this point now, we're 10 years later, or even a little more than that, 10, 12 years later, uh, we estimate we, we're around 200 elk. Um, there, there could be times where we get, get influxes of elk out of Nevada. That, that's the other hard part about uh, managing that herd is they're so migratory. Yeah. And and hit in all three states, and they move, and they right. move a long ways, and they'll they'll do it at night. They'll move ten miles at night to come raid a a hayfield, and they'll just do it under the cloak of darkness. They'll be they'll be back to the state line by daylight, and they're running yeah. the whole way <laughs> yeah. there and back. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, they they know the time frames that that they're stuck to. There was a situation that I remember talking to you about that just blew my mind. Let's box elder is the example. You have elk in an area where there's currently no management plan. Like in my mind, I always thought that no matter where you were in the state, that there was a management plan. Can you talk about why that is not the case and then how you have to adapt? Yeah. So um, it just seems so weird to me that like there's, you're not hunting elk out here because there's no management plan. It's just, it was a, it was a weird idea to me. Yeah. So that, it's an area where it's almost all private land and 
cultivated property, a, a lot of cultivated crops in there. And so it's not necessarily a place where where elk are desired. Um, and they probably but, haven't been before. And Yeah, so there's, I mean, this goes back in time of, of when these elk first started coming into Utah because we did not release any there. Um, they, they, they migrated in naturally, found enough cover for them, and then they found a lot of these fields. And, and there's, there's a lot of rangeland out there as well for the elk. Um, but it, it's not necessarily a place where uh, that, I mean, I, I, I say a broad we wanted them. It's not just the division, but as, as the we, people in general the, there just, didn't want it. Right. People in general, because as we set up these population objectives, we form committees. Uh, and that includes the private landowners and and it it includes the sportsmen and it includes elected officials and and it includes biologists so we 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 go in to say okay we could have elk here but is it worth the the cost of the the depredation or to getting by the freeway the freeway runs right through there and the elk are crossing the freeway um you know it, is it worth having them? And and back way before my time, it was a no. You know this this isn't a place. Well, the elk come in, and so for for our management objectives at this point, we have an objective of zero. Therefore, if there's elk in there, they're causing problems. You know, let's let's hunt them hard. And so, um, you know, we try and overwhelm the, the system with antlerless permits. Right. And and be able to, to get the antlerless harvest. So we're not just bringing more babies and, and increasing that population. Uh, did the open any bull hunt strategy. So we're not trying to build bulls in there, but we're just, you know, anything goes. You, you, pretty much any elk on on the landscape, we have a permit that that you can go and hunt. And, uh, you know, it's pretty much over the counter if if. It, it you can get the bull tags over the counter it's the antlerless tags that you'd have to put in for the draw for or it, if you know one of the private landowners we have the private landowner per, only permits that that you can just go and pick one of those up and 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 use it and so uh that was just crazy to me that some areas and it's largely because migration happened but you may see that with mountain goats as they are moving, or bighorn sheep or pronghorn as they move into areas that they've never been before. Right. Then you either say, we don't want animals there, or you come up. Because as soon as you come up with a management plan, then you have to start managing toward whatever objective. Right. Yeah, so that that's definitely one of those areas where we have had some, some new landowners come in and, and buy some of the property at that that are interested in and they in, hold enough of ground in, in having some elk. Yeah. Right. Yep. They're, they're large enough landowners. Um, they're, they're interested in forming a CWMU. Uh, if we have a population of objective of zero and a CWMU, they're kind of conflicting management strategies because this, the CWMU program encourages tolerance and gives uh, a financial incentive to, to have, elk on on your property rather than have them just be a liability and and a cost to you and and so it with that now we're at the at the point of okay we're going to need to form one of these committees again to sit down and say okay this is what we got going on how can we make it work you know i i feel like we're the the division of wildlife we're we're in that spot to facilitate these discussions and find that middle ground where, where we, you know, it might not be what the, the CWMU guys really want, and it might not really be what the private landowners getting the depredation want, but if we can find that middle ground to where we can have some elk, but it's also not to the point where, you know, we, we shut down all the, the antlerless harvest yeah. type deal or all the, the mitigation permits and vouchers and all that. So, so I think there's a happy, happy medium there for us to, to where we can set that an objective to say, okay, we can, you know, have up to 150 elk here. And that way, 
you know, as the CWMUs are up there and not providing very much disturbance or very little disturbance, that can be that safe haven for those elk to go to when they go down, cause problems. We have more hunters down there. We have more, more activity trying to discourage them from being down there. There is a place for those elk to go to. I like that. Um, we've touched on it quite a bit, um, but you hear it from hunters constantly. Uh, it's more about they, what they feel is inconsistency in management. And I just feel that there's a misunderstanding in how animals are managed by units when they're, I can go to box elder and kill a monster and there's a ton of tags and then I go to this unit and there's no animals and there's no tags. And can you talk about why they're, why, what is considered an inconsistency is more about adaptive management per unit? Yeah, so... It's con- It's hard, it, it's, it, but it's easy to it, understand. Right. It's, this, it's all of the above. This state is so diverse of landscapes and people and so you know your your biology and and your social side of things to where um there there could be places where you know we 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 don't have as many people there's not there's not as many vocally or vocal opposition to to elk but you know we we try and grow big animals there and just can't get them but then there's other places where we we don't really want the elk there's a lot of people but for whatever reason man we just you know it's crazy yeah just just for how it works well even like where we're at now i don't think there's a house within what 30 20 miles i don't know we're quite a ways yeah it's a long ways and and your survivability for box elder on mule deer is 90 percent but then you just go a little bit east and you had 20, 27% success rate or survivability. And, and so I just don't think people realize the how diverse each unit is and how you can't manage it all the same across the board. Right. And it, there's just so many factors that go into to wildlife management that, that there cannot be consistency. I mean, the, the best consistency that we can have is to have the statewide management plans like we do and give us a range. And say, okay, you can fall between here and there. And some are going to be up on the, the higher end. Some are going to be down on the lower end. Some some will hit right in the middle. But just just depending on, you know, how, how the habitat is, you know, that, that can have a lot to do with it. Your snow levels. And we got Rich County where they still, I mean, we're the middle of April now. They're still under at least three feet of snow. And we got snow yesterday. Got more snow yesterday as compared to out here in western Box Elder County where, you know, all winter long, these animals have had places they could go where there's no snow. And if it did snow, it melted off within a couple of days, similar to, to what southern Utah is doing right now. I, I just uh, talked with a radio show the other day about a similar topic, and I had to, to let them know that, you know, even though... Um, you know, the, like the Pine Valley Mountains at 300% of snowpack. I mean, it's the best winter they've had. Down 300%. There. And, right. And they're at, they're at the 90% survival down there of does and fawns. And it could be, you know, one of those best deer years they've ever, ever had. had. Whereas up here, you know, it's probably we, the worst we hit thing we 200% can and it could be the worst thing that we've ever had. Just, just depending on where you're at because there's just so much variability and and those local populations where you know you get up into to morgan you get up into summit county and camas uh over to to lake town and and randolph and rich county and the lowest elevations that they have for those deer to go they're just not low enough they just just physically can't get out of those areas and um you know one of the challenges uh, and the drawbacks of feeding is, is we stop the migrations from those deer. You know, who knows? Maybe those deer historically went further out into into Wyoming, down onto the Red Desert, and you know, between roads and and homes and fences and and feeding and and whatever else 
is involved there, you know, maybe we've stopped those migrations. Those migrations, those that, long ones. Yeah, that that those deer need to to be able to get out of those those areas of of just severely deep snow, um, because I mean, there's areas um, where yeah, you you just can't carry a deer through the winter. It, it's just just too hard on them. And, I've often wondered that about the cache unit because I wondered if they often migrated out here to the west, but then we've got two freeways blocking their way, 15 and 84, and I wonder if they used to migrate out here and then would migrate back in, but because of all the development stuff we got going on, that's why you have some of the fattest deer going into winter and some of the skinniest deer coming outside of winter. Right, yeah, for the cache, they definitely have more summer range than winter range. Uh, and you know biologically they can they can just recover and and build so much fat that, that they can survive the winters um, better than other areas and um, you know we we've seen a lot that even even without the tall fences on on a freeway we've seen freeways acting as barriers I mean the deer will the, the collared deer will come right up to it and just stay right there and and move back to the other side or, or move back up to where they come from and and um i i know it's had some impacts on on migrations and so fortunately you know there there's a big uh, big push to improve migrations and, and preserve migration corridors right now and even bring back migration corridors and um, i was happy to see the legislature stepped up and and Boy, they allocated like twenty million dollars for for in this latest round in, in this yeah. latest round for for highway crossings. Um, you know, you if you can couple up some of some of the tall fencing to to get it to some overpasses, some underpasses. Boy, when when these deer really need to get out of an area, they'll be able to at, at this point. That's cool. I like that. As we come to an end of this conversation, is there a unique experience that you've had with wildlife that you think back on that's just, I don't know, enjoyable, funny? I can think of quite a few that I've had with you, <laughs> but I was wondering if there's any that you can think of that uh, it's just, you know, it's one of those things and you're like, this is this is why I work with wildlife. Boy, there's, there's been so many of them that are just so rewarding of, you know, coming out on a, a morning like this being able to watch sage grouse do their thing and uh you know just the the sharp tail grouse same way just so interesting to to watch what they do and how they they make uh, make their living basically you know and to to go in and boy pulling cougars from under decks and <laughs> tracking them up. that was probably the worst day of my life <laughs> <laughs> tracking them up worst day of my life and career was tracking cougars put gps collars on and not catching up to it until yeah i thought right, you died that day. right before dark yeah you saved my life on that one <laughs> i mean but still it, it's an experience that you know very few people get yeah getting in the helicopter and coming over and and seeing the mountain goats and the bighorn sheep and and the elk and the moose and being able to to handle the animals through you know and putting the gps collars on and uh boy there's just so many i i can't even think of of just one specific i mean being able to to go in on bear dens um you know what i guess one of them that'll always stand out to me is you know following the the radio collar into where the den should be and we cannot find it looking 40 feet up in the tree the tree just has a big crotch in there where the the two main branches spread out and we look up there and think no, no it it's can't. not up there and we climb clear up there and sure enough it's got a tree den oh, and, and it's hollowed out down it can't be very big that tree it, it was a good size tree it? yeah it was a good sized tree up above camas and so uh doing that um, <laughs> 40 feet in the air going up you thought you were going to be climbing in the dirt right and then well and then trying to pull that bear out because we we darted her in the tree and needed to to replace the collar on her at least and just trying not to fall out of the tree and um that's crazy but doing that uh climbing trees the 
to pull a darted cougar out and yeah, yeah and, we've had a few and going to to move it to to let it out and its eyes pop open you know it's like oh no now what you know one one of our biggest criticisms for employees coming in into the the agency is there's no training no. well there's so many different situations <sighs> yeah i don't know how we'd train no. you for 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 everything it that that happens you know there there's a lot of those that that we do provide the training for but there's just so many unique situations where if something can happen even if it's a 0.1 percent chance it's going to happen you and i standing on the edge of a cliff holding a moose up (laughs) right yeah (laughs) tries to fall on the freeway right yeah (laughs) yeah and and that was after darting it way down below where it would be just fine but no it wanders up or it goes or the moose that goes out into bear lake oh yeah we're starting starting to strip down to be able to go hold its head up out of the water we had that the other day in ogden canyon too where I mean, there's just snow everywhere. Runoff is coming. People want a sandbag, but there's a moose in their backyard. And so it's going to put the moose right on the edge of the river, which is dramatically rising. And so it's a, what do we do? Because we got the the road right there too, and people drive way too fast. And so we had to work with the highway patrol to close the road down, thinking that we could get the moose up on the road to let it go down on the road and then we could pick it up with the trailer and move it. Oh no, it moved right back, right on the edge of the river. So somebody had to get in the river to hold it up. <laughs> and then of course there's a six foot tall snowbank there. Fortunately, one of the homeowners had a skid steer or happened to have a skid steer right there. Oh, so they so could, lucky. so they could dig a path to get it out. You know, like I say, even if it's a 0.1% chance of happening, it's going to happen eventually because yeah. we've seen it. But but yeah, being able to, awesome. to 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 you know work elk up at hardware and do the brucellosis testing and uh, one of the, I guess one of the the mem- most memorable things I'll remember too is learning how high a pronghorn can actually jump. <laughs> they don't like to jump, but I was down on the Parker Mountains doing a transplant, and they have a a big funnel trap where they run the elk in with a helicopter and they shut the gates behind them. Well, they they have an area where they'll let 10 or 12 pronghorn in at a time, and then people come in and, and immobilize them, you know, grab them, hobble them, so they can then get them in the trailer and put the collars and ear tags and whatever on them. Well, it was at least a 10-foot-high curtain around the the round end part of that trap where where they let the pronghorn in, we go in and, and jump on them. And it might even been 12-foot-high. But this one buck come running in, and he jumped so high he got his front legs up and over the edge or over the top what? of that. I couldn't quite take himself over, and he fell back in. Holy but cow. everything I'd ever learned is, oh, yeah, pronghorn, they, they don't, don't jump. jump. They can't yeah. jump a fence. Yeah, they can't jump a fence. Oh, they can jump when they want to. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Holy cow, that's The crazy. bighorn sheep coming up and out of the the pen where we had it all secured and yeah that one that just shot straight up 16 feet yep it it somehow caught its feet on on, on that power bar. river panel and gone. it was gone that i just remember my yeah. eyes I, they couldn't get any bigger <laughs> yeah. when i realized that thing just cleared it yeah. oh no we got a disease sheep <laughs> right <laughs> and it's gone that's crazy last last thing uh before we're done is i just wanted to share or to see if you remember one experience that will always stand out with me as the worst day that I ever had with the division. And that was the day you put me in a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. So we were doing elk captures and I'd never got to go. I wanted to go so bad and and I'm a bigger guy. And so they put me in the helicopter. And first of all, when you see a picture of me, I can't even fit in this helicopter. <laughs> Like I, they tried, guy yeah, a little helicopter. Yeah, they tried to put me in the back, and they're like, "This isn't going to work. You got to get up front." And then, then we had to get the fat person extend a belt because <laughs> they couldn't get the the seat belt. But then they dropped me off with a little Annette. She she's got to weigh ninety pounds, and I'm two sixty. She runs out across this snow that they've already hobbled, and I step out off into the snow, and I immediately plunge. And I rack myself because my legs split the bar and I wrench 
the helicopter to the side. <laughs> the pilot starts yelling at me to get off the helicopter. So I just flopped to the side. And then I did my dangdest to get over here, over to where she was at, which was only 10 yards. And she was swearing at me in Swedish or Norwegian. <laughs> I don't know what it was. But that was the worst day of my life. And then I got back in the truck with you, and we were supposed to go talk to the kids at Utah State. Yep. I don't know. I'd I laid, pizza. Yeah. <laughs> I laid in your truck for a good, what, 45 minutes, called my <laughs> wife and told her to come pick me up. And then I went home and sat in the bathtub. And I had lost nine pounds that day. <laughs> that that will always be a moment. Oh, yeah. Those, I mean, <laughs> that, you, you look at how awesome that seems to do it until you get up there and you're in waist deep snow and you can't move through it and it it's work it was horrible those muggers yeah like that literally become the toughest job i've ever seen anybody do when you realize they do it day in and day out oh yeah and then they're in there rolling those elk over by themselves to to hobble them and blindfold them and get them out of the nets they're 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 amazing that's one thing that i'm not tough enough to do that job and the thing that sucked about that day is the snow where I got dropped off was 60, 80, 80, 90 inches deep. Yeah. Randall goes in the very next day, and the deepest snow he got in was four inches. <laughs> four inches. Yeah. I always thought I was set up. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I, I got one more for you yeah. that I thought was going to be your worst day ever. <laughs> it was that... I can't remember what year it was, but we had so many dead deer everywhere that we all had to pitch in and help each other oh, yeah. go that pick was, up stuff. And that I, had to I, be 17, 18. I, I went with you, and there was a dead deer down in the blackberry patch, oh, and yeah. Nick, boom, <laughs> right right in, into the, the thorned blackberries, too. <laughs> that, I yeah. thought that was going to be your worst day story. <laughs> no, no, no. I, was, I still remember the one where I thought I was going to die in your truck. <laughs> yeah. Hey, do you want to come eat pizza? No, I just want to die. And I just <laughs> lay there. Oh, we've had a lot of good ones, though. From, yep. from moose hanging off of cliffs to... Killing elk in the middle of the night. Yeah. It's, it's Wildlife is different. Once you're involved in wildlife, it, it, you almost have to be passionate because the pay isn't worth it. Yep. So you have to be passionate. Well, thank you, Jim. Appreciate you sitting down with us. Yep, it's been no a good problem. Time. Thanks.